Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. The Pioneer Florida Museum in Dade City is holding a Seminole Wars weekend December 18th and 19th. Following its success last year with a living history interpretation of the Treaty of Fort Dade, this year's event recalls the Battle of Black Point. This was a Seminole attack on a wagon supply train. It is significant because it happened before the Dade Battle in present-day Bushnell by about 10 days. It demonstrated that safe travel was precarious in December 1835 on the treaty-provided Fort King Road through the Seminole Reservation. Joining us to describe the battle and the overall Seminole Wars programming for that weekend is Andy Warner. Andy is a historical research specialist who has curated the museum's library and exhibits and coordinated its events since his arrival two years ago. He is also an accomplished living history interpreter himself, portraying figures from various Florida historical periods at events throughout the state. Andy Warner, welcome to the Seminole Wars. Thank you very much, Patrick. Glad to be here. Andy, what's going on with the Pioneer Florida Museum this weekend of December 18th and 19th? Well, this idea was born out of me really building a network of Seminole War reenactors in the area. And we ran a small event called the Treaty of Fort Dade last December, almost 12 months ago to the day. It went so well, uh, established more contacts there that I got the notion to expand this into the same format that we do our Civil War and World War II living history events with a school field trip day on the Friday before and then two days of programming on Saturday and Sunday. It's very interesting because we're actually going to be portraying the Battle of Black Point, which occurred on uh, December 18th, 1835. We'll be portraying it on the actual anniversary. Uh, And the Battle of Black Point actually occurred just miles from uh, where the museum's currently located. And so there was enough interest, both from the public and from the reenactors and uh, other participants, that I wanted to blow it up to a full three-day event. Again, I want to be clear that school field trip day is strictly for homeschool groups, public and private and charter schools. Uh, We're not open to the public that day, but the public days are the 18th and the 19th of December. Andy, I must confess, I'm a little bit uh, rusty in my uh, knowledge of the Battle of Black Point. What was it about? It wasn't a battle so much as a skirmish. Interestingly enough, Captain John Warren, who actually bears a lot of my name, was leading a group of Florida volunteers on a wagon train. You know, I believe they were making a delivery probably either to Fort Foster or possibly even Fort Brooke in Tampa. And they were ambushed by a Seminole raiding party. They were driven off the train and then word got out that the wagon train had been ambushed and a group of militiamen from the nearby fort came back and stormed the caravan, eventually drove the Seminoles off. It was a minor skirmish, really one of many such skirmishes in 1835 and throughout the year. But this one just happened to be on the anniversary of the event and also extremely local to where we're holding the event. Even as a skirmish, this should be more significant as it took place before hostilities officially began. Yeah, this is technically before the massacre. You know, Dade Massacre is widely accepted as the flashpoint of starting the Second Seminole War. And I don't really think the Battle of Black 
point can really claim that because it was a smaller skirmish. Several such skirmishes had been occurring, frankly, for decades as Americans were flooding down into what at the time was Spanish Florida, inevitably coming into conflict with the territory of the Seminole Indians. So this was one of those many such smaller incidents. But I don't want to portray it as being able to take anything away from the Dade Massacre. The Dade Massacre had reverberations throughout the country, frankly. So I don't want to try to diminish that, but it predated. What can you tell us about this skirmish? I'm actually still doing the research on Black Point. I've yet to follow where the wagon train eventually made it to. Seminoles were driven off, uh, although most of the baggage train was either consumed or hauled away. So there might not have been a whole lot left in the uh, delivery, but I am unaware of where it proceeded from there. However, that is a checkbox on my research list on the presentation that I'm planning on putting together a preface skirmish reenactment that we're going to do during the event. This would have been along the Fort King Military Road, correct? Yes. Yes, it would have been, which, as you know, runs more or less uh, along U.S. Highway 301, deviates at different points. But U.S. Highway 301 is just a stone's throw from the main entrance of the museum. All right, Andy. So visitors to the Florida Pioneer Museum can see this skirmish reenacted. But that's not the only thing they'll see when they come to the museum. Correct. And it's a full day of programming from 10 o'clock all the way to 4 o'clock. We'll probably cut it off just a little bit earlier on Sunday to let everybody get packed up and go home. But they'll be programming packed into the day around the battle and uh, have some amazing presenters coming in. Tell us about them. Uh, some people that are really going to blow your mind. A few people in particular that I've got coming down the first time, uh, historian and author Dale Cox. Uh, Dale Cox is a well-renowned historian, uh, pretty much of the whole southeastern United States. Uh, he's actually a part Uchi Indian. I met him during a Creek War event that I participated in. And he's an author of over 12 books about Florida and southeastern U.S. history and a major, major resource on local history. And I've managed to convince him to come down and he'll be giving presentations more leaning towards the first Seminole War and then kind of flashing forward into the second. And then his wife and cohort, Rachel Conrad, who is actually a professor at Troy University in Alabama, is coming down as well. And she'll participate along with Dale in the symposium at 6 p.m. on Saturday. Rachel actually does a portrayal of Millie Francis, a.k.a. the Creek Pocahontas, who is the young Native American woman that is portrayed on the Florida State Seal. On top of that, I have Seminole tribesmen Daniel and uh, Samuel Tommy coming in. Daniel actually participated in our event last season where he brought out an unfinished Seminole canoe, one that he was working on. And then he also brought in a completed one as well. And so he'll demonstrate the craft, the seminal techniques of canoe building. I'll get him to do some presentations as well. His brother Samuel is an accomplished Native American flute player. So he'll be playing the flute in the transitional moments throughout the day. And Samuel actually is an accomplished visual artist. So he's bringing several of his visual art paintings, I believe, as the medium. I'm not sure exactly whether it's oil or watercolor or what it is. But he'll be bringing out a lot of his work, and that'll be on display here in the Lockheed Tool Room in the main building. On top of that, I have a bunch of guys coming in, uh, crafters. I have some flint nappers coming in, guys that do leather beadwork, trying to get a guy who uh, does fire starting from the hand drill technique. And then a number of other artisans and craftsmen. Jim Sawgrass, if you don't know who that is, he is one of the 
preeminent seminal Miccosukee living historians and presenters in the state of Florida. His show is just magnificent. He participated in last year's event as well, and uh, we made sure and uh, reserved the date to get him back for this. We'll have two camps set up. We'll have a seminal camp on the east side of the grounds and then a soldier militia camp on the west side of the grounds. There'll be different stations that depict different elements of those people's lives. I believe Jerry Morris is coming out. He'll depict what soldiers lived with, what they ate and drank they would have been on the march with. They were bringing out a uh, mountain howitzer, which is the type of cannon that the uh, soldiers during that time period would have tried to haul around with them. And then on the other side, the Seminole Village will be set up. The different aspects of that life and different crafts and different different techniques of constructing the things that they needed to survive their daily lives with. So there'll be living history demonstrations all throughout, and then I'll, there'll be a lineup of speaking engagements as well that go on at certain times. We will publish a schedule of the different speakers. So there'll be a phase where you can listen in to the different presentations. There'll be the walk-around element where you can just approach the living history stations and take it in from there. Also, the battle reenactment in the middle of the day. Some of our listeners, as well as myself, might be confused that this is the Florida Pioneer Museum or the Pioneer Florida Museum. And what's the difference? You flipped it. The Florida Pioneer Museum is down in Homestead. I actually have some people call in thinking that we're them. I bet they get tons of people calling in thinking that they're us. But we are the Pioneer Florida Museum Ampersand Village in Dade City, Florida. Besides the name order, what's the difference between your two museums? Well, I've not been to their village, but what I've seen online is it actually is quite similar in that they have a number of historical buildings that are on display. I do not think that they have a museum portion as we do, an, an air-conditioned, curated museum portion. I believe that their village is just the collection of buildings. So the Pioneer Florida Museum has a number of buildings on its campus, but it also has the indoor museum, air-conditioned, I might add, that visitors can peruse. Correct. Well, as I just mentioned, the curated interior part of the main building is a real point of pride for me personally. When I got here, closing in on two years ago, I worked very hard at not only reconfiguring the format of everything and putting it a little more in a chronological timeline, but we worked very hard at increasing the written material, the provenance behind a lot of the items. Uh, when I first started, I was getting stumped with questions about what is this? Uh, well, once I researched and found out what the things are, I created provenance behind them so that most of the things that you see in here now have some written description of what exactly it is. The inside of the museum, I'm very proud of it myself. There's a civilian side of it and a more military side of it. The military side follows a chronology from the Civil War, the Spanish-American War, the First and then the Second World War, which ends the uh, time period that we focus on up to 1945. So in addition to that, we have the several period, 10 time period specific buildings as well. And also one of the other buildings that was built here, the Mabel Jordan Barn, one of the larger rooms in it, we rent out for special events. But it has a number of John Deere tractors, turpentine hacks. There's an old-fashioned blacksmith display with the process that was done to actually create turpentine. And then the uh, smaller room is our carriage room. We have a number of horse-drawn carriages as well as a couple of what they call horseless carriages. There's an old Ford Model T truck. And currently we have on loan a 1919 Ford Model T truck 
And then we also have a Ford Model A car in there as well. So it's far more than just the village. It's a museum and there's other buildings as well. What is the timeline in Florida history that the Pioneer Florida Museum covers? Our museum covers Florida's history pretty much from its inception all the way up until 1945. When you first walk into the museum, we have a lot of prehistoric artifacts, mastodon teeth, fossils, moving forward into like Clovis points, uh, hand-napped points. And then that kind of gap is really where we're focusing on now, trying to cover that gap between the Spanish colonial era up through the Seminole War. We cover that here, but it's a gap in what we have presented in the main building. And that's our area of focus right now. Annie, this is where I ask you to discuss the Seminole Wars aspect of the collection inside your museum. We are in the process of unveiling a large collection of Second Seminole War artifacts, the Van Blarkham Keller Collection, to currently have in storage, but we are actually getting ready to, in the next few weeks, we will have it ready for this event. We will have much of that collection on exhibit here in the museum. This is a step up from what the museum previously had on the Seminole Wars. There was a brief touch on the Seminole Wars kind of next to that prehistoric area. It was well put together. In fact, I haven't even touched the display case because it was so well put together. But it was the only thing that we had on it. And it really didn't go into very much detail about the three conflicts. And that is really an area of Florida history that is, in my opinion, so uniquely Florida and then the second Seminole War being so unique to Central Florida, particularly this area that the museum is located in current day uh, Pasco County. So where are you putting this Seminole Wars exhibit? We had a temporary display area right at the entrance of the Lockheed Tool Room, and I was able to get approval to utilize that entire temporary display area for this second Seminole War exhibit. Now, I have plans in the future to extend a timeline that would incorporate both the first, second, and third Seminole Wars, and then would touch the north end of the building, and the north end of the building wraps around into the Civil War section, and as I'm sure you well know, Patrick, the third Seminole War ended in 1858. We all know that the Civil War started up in, well, as soon as states started seceding in 1860, but really started in 1861. So my long-term vision is to tie those three Seminole Wars into the Civil War exhibit. And then you have a very nice through timeline that connects both those very, very significant phases of not just Florida, but American history. The collection has a name, the Van Blarkham Keller Collection. What is it? It came about through contact with Stephen Rink and the Seminole Wars Foundation, who I would like to add as an event sponsor for our upcoming event on December 18th and 19th. Through collaboration with the foundation and with Mr. Rink, it came to our attention that there was a very vast Seminole War collection that was just sitting in boxes in uh, Ralph Van Blarkham's house. And there was a lot of interest by the uh, proprietors of the collection to get it displayed somewhere. And so we went through the process. Stephen and I went to uh, Ralph's house. We categorized and, uh, and annotated every piece, packed them up into waterproof boxes. And we brought them here to the museum. And here they've lived for a few months now until we actually rescued some display cases from a local flea market. And I had volunteers help revitalize and improve the display cases to where you would have never guessed that I hauled these beat up display cases out of an abandoned flea market. They look beautiful now. I actually personally rigged them up with LED lights and they are ready for the work. And uh, 
as busy as I am and as much as I would like to do that myself, I am actually enlisting the help of both Mr. Rink and of some other board members here to help me put three display cases together in the coming weeks. It will be all in place, at least the three display cases worth will be in place by the time of the event coming around. So highly encourage anyone, if they're coming out for that event, definitely make sure and catch this collection. It has some wonderful artifacts. Such as? There's an old Spanish rifle in there. There's a pair of a soldier's shoes in there. The plumb bob that was actually used to build the bridge across the Hillsborough River, the Fort Foster site, is part of the collection as well. And there, are, and there are numerous other things, more than I'll even be able to put out on display currently. But we have plans on both expanding the area and also of rotating items throughout the display area as well. Once you have everything assembled, what will you do with the display cases? And how are you presenting the material? What we'll do with these cases, because the artifacts will be somewhat densely packed inside them, what I'm going to do is I'm going to create uh, what are called keys. And a key is signage that has a number corresponding to the artifact. And there'll be two, maybe three sentences about what the artifact is. And then you'll be able to match that number against the number that's next to the the artifact. We're going to have the display cases just with numbers next to the artifacts. And then the numbers will correspond to a key on some signage that is displayed prominently in front of the display case. For much, much more detail, you're selling Ralph Van Blarkham's book, Seminole War Artifacts and History of Forts in Florida. Tell us more. Ralph's book goes into great detail about the artifacts. If you were looking to get an insider's peek into what all is out here and what all is still not even quite out there yet, I highly recommend that book. So you and Steve are getting along, huh? That's another great benefit to partnership with Seminole Wars Foundation that we have been forging over the last several months is we have a number of titles from the Seminole War Foundation that we have on sale here in the gift shop, covering all the way from the first Seminole War all the way through the third one. We also sell the Seminole Wars Foundation t-shirts with the artwork by Jackson Walker here in the gift shop. And you're not just selling books related to the Seminole Wars. These books go into your larger library collection of books about those periods. The great addition to the library here. In fact, that's another of the larger expansions that we've been able to incorporate here at the museum is expanding library of books. So I'm very happy to have a lot of those titles here. Andy, okay, for the record, where is the Pioneer Florida Museum located and how do you find it? The physical address here at the Pioneer Florida Museum is 15602 Pioneer Museum Road. You got to like that. We got a road named after us. It's just about a mile north of downtown Dade City, just off of U.S. Highway 301. Very easy to find. You'll see the brown signs as you approach it. There's a big canvas sign also out by the street as well. The phone number here is 352-567-0262. We have a pretty well-maintained website at www dot pioneer florida museum dot org that's a great place to find out what current events that we have going on if you're interested in bringing out your school group we have mechanisms for you to sign up for the school field trips directly on the website and we have some wonderful packages put together we're open 10 a.m to 5 p.m tuesday through saturday every building is usually open here at the museum there are 13 total buildings 10 of them are time period specific but the other three were built here, but they house artifacts uh, from the different time periods. So whether or not there's a tour, whether or not there's an event, it's still a great visit. It's a great time to come out. 
Uh, you want to give yourself at least a couple hours. If you're a person like me that reads every written thing in the building, you're going to need more like three, three and a half hours. It's a great place to make a day out of it. Downtown Dade City has a lot of really nice mom and pop restaurants, particularly lunch spots. So I highly encourage you people to come out and do that. If you come to the museum on a regular day when there's not an event, and the concession stand is not open, a lot of times people will bring their lunches and have their lunch at a picnic table out on the museum grounds. That is a wonderful thing to do this time of year when the weather is nice. I don't really recommend it in July because it can get a little brutal out there. A bite to eat so everyone's ready to take in so much more that's available to see in the park. There is just tons and tons of information to take in here, all pertaining to Florida history. I encourage people to come out even if there's not a special event going, uh, if there's not a special event, they do have the advantage of catching me on a slow day. If you catch me on a slow day, I can give you a guided tour and tell you a lot about the artifacts in here, and I do enjoy doing that. When you do have special events throughout the year, you have docents in the buildings. What do they do? For the special events, there'll be docents at each of the buildings. Most of the docents are very knowledgeable about the building that they're occupying, and they can tell you, you know, some history about each of the buildings, and they're there to just welcome you and also, you know, keep an eye on things. I always tell people, especially the younger people, uh, make sure and look with your eyes and not with your hands. Uh, but they're all living historians generally as well. Uh, this museum does not exist without the wealth of very, very skilled uh, volunteers and docents that put this together. I do work pretty hard at putting these events on and organizing them, but ultimately this would just not be possible if I did not have the help of this small army of volunteers that helps out with these events. And overall, the types of special events are? From a historical standpoint, our Civil War Living History event was themed around the August 1864 Battle of Gainesville. went so far as to portray units involved in the battle and choreographed our battle scenario to somewhat mimic the ebbs and flows of the August 1864 Battle of Gainesville. That is every November. It's the third weekend in November. Seminole War One, as I mentioned, is the third weekend in December. And then fourth weekend in April, we do a World War II Living History event. Now, all three of these have that combination school field trip day and then public day behind it. And then over the summer, we do a number of smaller programs during the hot season. We do them inside in the Lockheed room. Just this past summer, we did one on the Trilby train depot, the engine outside. We did one on the Spanish-American War in Florida. And then we did one on the First World War as well. So the programming never stops here. And really, I'm only listing the uh, history events that we do. We do a number of other family-oriented festivals. Brand new this March, we're doing a Cracker Cowboy Day, which is uh, an event that we've never put on before. It'll be the first time that we're doing that. And then we added to our Raising Cane Festival, the festival where we actually cane syrup. This will be in January. We added a Moonshine Festival to that, too. So that's going to be an interesting element to a traditional event that we do every January. You just did a Civil War event, but is there another one coming up? It was a hiatus for a few years. Typically, we had done two, one in February, one in November. And as we are picking up other time eras, we decided to go down to one Civil War event. And we devised that the best time for that would have been the November engagement as opposed to the February one. The February one conflicted with some of the other Civil War events in the area. 
And as an event organizer, I'm always trying to be very aware of other places doing similarly themed events around the same time. I always try to give everyone at least two weeks of a cushion between events and try to steer clear of other nearby events as best I can. So I try to be respectful of other events because if you're not respectful of other people's event dates, then it ends up damaging both events. So a lot of care has gone into the scheduling of these things so that everyone benefits from it and no one loses out. Just this year, as a matter of fact, we did a Civil War event just this past February, and now we came back and did our November one again, but now we will not be doing the February one in the future. The reason being with that is because a lusty largest Civil War reenactment in the state of Florida is two weeks before the February event that we did, and the Battle of Natural Bridge, which is pretty far away, but we get some of the groups that participate in that one to come to our event. And so in order to decrease the burden on them, when we decided we were going down to one, that's why we arrived at the November one, because we figured that was the most conducive date to make sure that we got as many participants as we could and also avoided other people's events. What type of museum is the Pioneer Florida Museum? It is a private museum. We are a 501c3 nonprofit. It technically started in 1961 with a number of donations from the Larkin family. We actually lived at the Pasco County Fairground for the next 14 years. And uh, on uh, Labor Day of 1975, they opened the property here. The main area is about six acres. And we do own about 12 to 15 acres of property being part of the pasture just to the east of us in the reenactor slash modern camping slash vendor parking lot, which is just across Lamac Road on the north side of the campus. And when we moved here, we built the main building and we brought in the Lacucci Schoolhouse. And from 1975 on, the museum continued to grow. A lot of our buildings came from either the Easter Towns Trilby and Lacucci, which are little towns about 9, 10 miles north of here. They were actually boom towns in the uh, 20s and 30s as the citrus and lumber industry took off. But when both of those industries took a nosedive, a lot of the buildings in that area fell into disrepair and neglect. Many of them ended up here. Since 1975, we've been acquiring these buildings and incorporating them into the museum. Just last June, we brought in the newest building. The tentative name is the Walt Black Log Cabin, although we've just been referring to it as the Log Cabin because there's still a little bit of debate exactly what we're going to name it. It's down in the bowl, which is on the uh, southwest end of the property. Currently has some caution tape around it because it is in the process of being restored to its natural state. It's coming along quickly. The floorboards, roof of the front porch is being put on, and I can really see the light at the end of the tunnel. I have a very good, very good feeling that it is going to be ready by this second Seminole War event on December 18th. I'm not sure if it's going to be completely dressed out, as in like, you know, the dining room table set and all, and the bedrooms made and all that. Uh, but the building itself, I expect it to be open during that time. How do you categorize the type of history that you're presenting here? Is it sugar-coated or is it Oliver Cromwell-esque, as in warts and all? History isn't always pretty. History isn't really here to make you happy or sad or, or fall in line with your 21st century morals. But there's certainly lessons to be learned from it. You have to have respect for people that live a much more difficult life than we live today. I think in society today, we generally try to kind of cast uh, kind of a moral judgment on history. And uh, I think that's a big mistake because 
I think once you do that, if you're consistent with it, there won't be anything left. So I think history has to be taken with a grain of salt. and History has to be looked at in the context of the people that lived during that time and where society's mindset was during that time. I always tell people, imagine if 160 years from now, if people judge our generation as harshly as we judge previous generations. So the Pioneer Florida Museum preserves some of that history in perpetuity and tries to explain it in an unbiased, in a very neutral, very fact-driven way. And I think that is so important today as political polarization has really driven a wedge in American society. So I think it is incumbent on us, on people like historians such as myself, uh, historians such as you, Patrick, and uh, and in museums, uh, to present history in its unvarnished, most honest state, not to editorialize, not to uh, make excuses, but also to present it as, as clearly and as accurately as possible. Well, we covered it. Andy Warner, thank you for joining us for the Seminole Wars. Thank you so much, Patrick. It was a pleasure. Glad to do it. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep the show going. Visit our website at www.summonawars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted. The Seminole Wars Foundation 2021. All rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden. Roast em, provided by kind permission of Rita Youngman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win, by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.